This is the Blatcast, a sometimes fast-paced but usually meandering look at the world. So kick back, get ready for quite possibly the longest one hour to perhaps the shortest two hours and 56 minutes of your life. And now, here's Christian Blatt. I Dig a Pygmy by Charles Hawtrey and the Deaf Aids. Phase one in which Doris gets her oats. Welcome wait, to wait, wait. the Blatcast. Few of us on the Bladcast talking Beatles all from our home. You brought me right into the song I was going to leave. I'm no with. Ringo. Yeah. Well, I didn't. Uh, I didn't realize that it was right there. Welcome to <laughs> the Get Blat Cast. I am the Blat in the title, the one and only Mr. Christian Blat, uh, joined by our friend Gene Beretta. Some of you know him as Gene from Philly. Uh, and uh, obviously, if I was going to do a show talking about the Beatles, he was the first person that I would think of. And Gene, it looks like yes. for show and tell, you've brought a friend today. Why don't you tell our audience who's here with us? I will. I brought along Mark Nelson, who is a friend and general manager of the Great Mahoning Drive-In in Lee Hayton, Lee Hayton, Pennsylvania. And if you don't know about this drive-in, you can go to Amazon Prime and watch a documentary called At the Drive-In and just make a really short. They're a retro drive-in and they're the last drive-in in the country to show 35 millimeter. And they have all these great themed weekends uh, during the course of the, you know, the season where people are dressed up and they decorate and they have people from the movie. And they're the most passionate people about these movies. And it's it's a step back in time. And Mark is so passionate about his job. You'll learn in part one when he was just an employee that every weekend he drove six hours from New Hampshire, right? New Hampshire. It was Southwestern. To work, to work there. And then he would sleep over in the snack stand and go back another six hours every weekend for the wow. season. Yeah, I know. And now he's he's in New York, so he's just two hours away from work. <laughs> well, that's amazing. Mark, thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, you know, I, I traded messages with Mark when we were setting this up. And uh, I consider myself very fortunate for someone from my generation. Uh, you know, I'm 45 as we're recording this. But uh, I grew up with uh, Drive-In. Uh, the first time I saw Star Wars, it was the re-release, but it was at the drive-in. The drive-in, which is uh, still open near where I grew up. It's the Warwick Drive-In, Warwick, New York. Obviously, drive-ins back that way, not open this time of year. But uh, I consider myself uh, very lucky to uh, have sort of had that experience. You know, my, my mom, of course, would make popcorn at home, and then we would eat it at the drive-in, you know, which is probably not what you want people to think when they go to your drive-in. But... <laughs> buy food yeah buy food exactly but uh and uh, there was a supermarket on the other side of the drive-in so you know they my dad would go to the supermarket and i'm like i'm gonna just sit in the car and i would listen to the movie on the uh, fm radio and uh you know look uh, last year uh, really most of my movie going was at drive-ins and the nice thing about living in los angeles is <clears throat> i guess there's a couple but one is that Within less than an hour, there are three drive-ins. Uh, one of them I liked very much. The other two were fine. But uh, so I, I love your story and the fact that uh, you're keeping the drive-in alive. Uh, and uh, so you'll be uh, open, I assume, sometime in the spring for the next season. 
every season is last weekend in April until last week in October for us because we're in Pennsylvania where it gets sure. mightily cold. I'm always jealous of folks in other parts of the country where they do have drive-ins all year round. But uh, for us in the Northeast, it's it's generally follows the school calendar. So yeah. mostly yeah. it's a summer thing. One year uh, I was in I was in Palm Springs and I couldn't believe that they didn't have a drive-in. You know, I was just like, what, how do you not have a drive-in, you know, year round, really? Uh, so that's great. Uh, so, Mark, place, uh, let me just add one thing. This place sure, is so cool. They had a, a, a weekend where the theme was wrestling movies and they had a professional wrestling ring built under the I screen see. on the lawn between the screen and the cars. And they had. Would you call them semi-pro wrestlers or pro wrestlers? Uh, regional pro wrestlers, I would say. Yeah, for like two hours having matches and things. And they had a, a DeLorean for the Back to the Future things. It's just, it's, it's such a great place. I can't stop talking about it. Well, and and Mark, uh, in addition to the drive-in, I believe you have a, a podcast that is uh, also branded. Uh, yes, we do Mahoning Drive-In Radio, which is yeah. a more or less weekly podcast where we just talk about running a drive-in in 2021 and drive-in memories and running a theater and movies in general. Well, uh, our pal in the live chat, Dominicus Saxon, says our last local drive-in, he lives in Idaho, closed down about 25 years ago, and I still miss that experience. And uh, yeah, I think that uh, there are uh, fewer and fewer of them as, as time goes by. And uh, it was, you know, during the pandemic, there were, uh, you know, during the height of the pandemic, I guess is the correct way to classify that. Uh, there, there were, there was a movie theater not too far from where we live in Van Nuys, where they owned the end, the, they're sort of the side wall of, of a mall that they were in. So they were able to project on the side there and we, uh, we took the kids and they were excited. We took them to see Tom and Jerry. And for anybody that hasn't seen Tom and Jerry, uh, all you need is the review of my then five-year-old son, which was the number of times he asked, where are Tom and Jerry? Because there's not enough Tom and Jerry in the Tom and Jerry movie. And uh, yeah. he was absolutely right about that. But we're talking about big, some... Go ahead. Was what was resurgence. that? Drive-ins came alive again during COVID. One of the few positive sure. things about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's and, terrible uh, to say, but we did very w good business last year. A lot of people discovered us and rediscovered the drive-in experience due to it being really the only feasible place people could gather safely. So yeah, well, um, we we gained a lot of new fans and followers and a lot of media attention over the course of the last year. So the drive-ins that are around uh, are fewer, fewer and farther between than they were when we were all young. I think at its height, there were about 3,000 in America, and now there's 300 or less. So, uh, you know, support your local and, and hopefully they'll they'll limp along into the next decade, at least. So do you think that uh, you could have a, a special weekend where you show uh, all three parts of Peter Jackson's uh, Get Back Beatles documentary? You'd have to start around uh, eight. What? So let's say you start at 8 p.m. and that would go to what? 4 a.m.? <laughs> It would have to be done early or late in the season. We've done triple yeah. features that run really long. So it's theoretically feasible that we could do that. It's not really what we do. We try to stay to 35 millimeter and, and old films. Sure. But a weekend of the three Beatle movies or four Beatle movies, I think would be fantastic. Yeah. And uh, are you able to, and, and just forgive the ignorance, are you able to show things in 70 millimeter or is the screen not formatted for that? It's, or? it's just 35, but 70 right. would require a different projector. So we can't okay. do that. I don't know that I've ever heard of a drive-in that could do 70 because yeah. I think they just had the standard equipment installed and that was that. We yeah, do have a makeshift digital booth. So theoretically we could show something newer or a right. Peter Jackson TV documentary, but that's probably not what we're going to do. 
they still have the simplex projectors they that were there from in 1949 oh wow yeah yeah so uh i think that uh that that's a great starting point though for our conversation about uh, the beatles get back is i i texted gene about this because you know when i had the idea that we would do a show about it i knew that i was going to need i was not going to be able to watch it uh thanksgiving weekend i just knew that i would not find the time uh especially uh unfortunately when my my son ended up being sick for about a week he had a little little fever and a little cold and uh boy that threw everything off and uh i, I when i actually finally got to sit down and i i opened disney plus i'm like well i knew that each part was movie length what i didn't realize is that they're all marvel movie length there's one that's like almost the first the first part i think is like almost four hours and uh, no, no, i was no. like the, well the, the, the longest one's just about three yeah. yeah right exactly so i was just i was like okay so this in my mind i was needing six hours for it and i'm like no i need eight hours so uh that was a great starting point now um i believe that i saw the the let it be movie i believe i saw once i saw like a a, a vhs bootleg of the the japanese laser disc and i know it was that because there were japanese uh subtitles the whole time uh so it was incredible. Oh, really? In the theater? I saw it in the theater when it first came out wow. in like seven, 77 or 78. Oh, it came out that way. First came. Did it? Well, maybe it was, it was released <clears> in 70. Okay. So it was a, I saw it in a the theater really? though, first time then, right. but it was re released and I saw it. Yeah. In the late 70s. It only hit video once. It hit Laserdisc and VHS in this country somewhere around the early 80s via Magnetic Video, which was like the first home video company. And then it never got re-released. So what most of us saw were bootlegs. They were VHS bootlegs or bootlegs from a Japanese Laserdisc. And yeah. uh, it, it just became increasingly impossible to see. It, it was right up there with the Star Wars Christmas special and uh roger corman's fantastic four movie from 1994 those were like the those were like my three like holy grails of like i can't believe i can watch this now um but i don't i honestly don't remember the movie very much and i'm not quite sure what obviously there's so much more of this but i don't know how different the narrative seems i i want to start with for me the biggest takeaway and then you can each chime in is Look, there's this notion that uh, people have had that I, even before I really knew much about the Beatles and I knew much about music, there was this notion that Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles. And you watch this movie and you know what broke up the Beatles? The Beatles broke up the Beatles. You can see how difficult it is for them to work with each other. Uh, just, you know, there's the moments where it's great to watch how much fun they're having. But I mean, we we see George quit the band and there's a lot of things that, that John directs sort of very passive aggressively at Paul, you know, and years later he would say, it you all, know, it all be... started during the white album. That was already, yeah. all that stuff was going on for at least a year or more, 18 months or so. And a lot of people, you know, what they didn't address in the new movie or in the first one is that John and Yoko were doing heroin at the time and they didn't kick it until August of that year. Yeah. So that's why John's probably late a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually wondering that. And uh, that was uh, one of the things that that I, I, I definitely was wondering, you know, like, and obviously, Ringo is tired very much throughout this. I think he uh, must but, have been sick with a cold or something. Yeah, he talked yeah. about how he had to go to a doctor at one point, you know, but yeah. um, and I actually I think it's, if anything, it's just very funny the way that Yoko's almost always there. I love she's knitting. 
she's reading the newspaper. And to me, it's funny. It's not, it's there's, you know, I don't think, you know, I think that uh, everybody else, the other guys all know that like, yeah, if John's going to be there, Yoko's going to be with him. But I would have thought that it would have felt, I don't even know, not hostile. I thought they would have been annoyed that she was there, but it, it didn't really come across it. But let me ask you first, Mark, um, what did you think sort of about the Yoko of it all? Like, I assume at some point, at some point in your life, you must have been able to subscribe to the notion like, well, it seems like everybody says Yoko broke up the Beatles, you know? That was what you heard for so long. That was yeah. part of you know common knowledge or lore. But the more I read, I mean, I read a lot of Beatle books so far in my life and I watched a lot of documentaries and it, it more and more came out that what you said. It was just they were all at a point in their lives where they're starting to get interested in things outside the group. You know, uh, Ringo was making movies pretty regularly. I mean, they said at the beginning of this documentary that part of the reason for the the time frame of when they had to be done by was because Twickenham Studio was about to, the space they were in was going to be used for sets for the Magic Christian. And indeed, while they're sitting there rehearsing, you're seeing trucks bringing sets into that space. Yeah. Like he was going to start a movie right after this. And That's George talks at one that. point about... I was going to say that's we can talk about this later, but that's why Peter Sellers shows up. Yeah, which, right. which was great. And, and you, you see George was talking about he had so many songs that he was like itching to release, which would become, you know, a triple album as soon as he had the chance. Yeah, let me just jump and in John for a second. There's, there's one point where, you know, he plays All Things Must Pass and and it doesn't come up again, you know. And look, there's great songs that make it onto the Let It Be album. And. I obviously I, I forgot a little bit about the timeline that obviously of course they would also be like sprinkling in some Abbey Road uh, songs. I, I actually I kind of forgot that like that the, the the sort of the lineage of you know Abbey Road being released first, but the, you know this being the same time. And but also yeah, too, the, let me just add to that. Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry. <clears throat> well, I'm glad you added it. that, Gene. Thank you very much. Now I'd like to vomit. Thanks for sharing. Sneeze. <laughs> um, Abbey Road was, they started recording it less than a month after the Let It Be sessions. So all right. those songs were were round and ready to go and ready to be, you know, yeah. filled. The, the idea out. that they would have done uh, Maxwell Silverhammer uh, by hitting the anvil live in front of an audience is actually kind of fun, you know. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, but to Mark's point, uh, you know, just sort of george and john have a great exchange i think it was in part three just sort of this idea that uh you know he's got all this music that he wants to get out and he's starting to realize that you know you could do that you could do the beatles stuff but john's even like i i think john's being sort of supportive and and, and complimentary to his material he's like yeah i mean we could do the beatles but it's all really george i forget what title he used you know so uh yeah you can uh, sort of expand on that mark well, what he was saying was, you know, he has all this music he wants to get out. And, and as you said, John was very supportive. And that was kind of surprising to me. And I might have read that once before, but Lennon was like, yeah, go ahead, do that. And then we'll do a Beatle album. Like it was basically encouraging. And they all had released, I think, at this point, except McCartney. Uh, was Sentimental Journey released when no, the Beatles they, were still no, together? nothing was released before they broke up. Oh, or, or was it? I'm thinking of Wonderwall music. Oh, Wonderwall, yeah, Wonderwall was, I think. I, think, they, yeah. I thought in, in the Family Way album, each I, I, there were a oh, couple of right, albums right. that had their names yeah. on them that weren't Beatle records. And the idea was they were both both of those were soundtracks, though I think so. It was a little right. bit different than a solo singles album, solo you know? record. So what they were suggesting was, yeah, maybe we could do solo albums and then get back together and, and do Beatle records, which was kind of fascinating. So all this was going on, and so much was pulling them in so many different directions. And they repeatedly say, 
I, you know, I wish Mr. Epstein, which I thought was cool, they called him Mr. Epstein still, yeah. like they were schoolboys. I wish Mr. Epstein was here because we need somebody to sort of rein us in and give us direction and crack the whip. All of that is what was pulling them apart. Yoko being there was just, there were a lot of people there. When you, that's another thing too, is I'm only used to the let it be version of this, which is 80 something minutes, maybe 90 minutes, yeah. not very long. And it's mostly focusing on the Beatles and it was shot square four by three on 16 yeah. millimeter film blown up to theatrical 35s. So you're losing the sides to be, or you're losing the top and the bottom and then being put on video where you're losing the sides again. So you're really only seeing part of the frame of the image that was captured. You don't get a sense of space. There were a lot of people hanging around. Maureen Starkey was there. Linda Eastman was there. So many Malev and so many hangers on were in that and, space. And let's not let's not forget the the Harry Krishnas that were there in in the uh, just the hanging off part. on the side. Yeah, and, and it was just sort of like oh, it, you know, and it was just sort of mentioned very much in passing. I'm sorry, what were you going to say, Gene? No, there's the girls they call the Apple Scruffs, who you can see sometimes just sit standing outside waiting for a beetle to come by yeah. or looking through the basement windows when they move over to uh, Savile Row. Yeah. In terms uh, of uh, some of the extra people that were around, uh, personally, uh, I really enjoyed the sequence. It's early in uh, episode three with uh, Heather, then Eastman, later Heather McCartney, who Paul adopted when he and Linda got married. I just thought it was it was sort of very cute. Uh, as I have two small children. My son is six. My daughter just turned four. But just sort of, you know, her running around making cat noises and John just so matter-of-factly talking about, like, well, you can't, you can't eat the one with the black spot. That one's not <laughs> good to eat. And just it was so funny to see Th that sort of side, you know, and then drumming alongside Ringo, you know, and she, uh, imitating Yoko. Go, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. The look on her face during uh, what I believe is called the freak out jam was nice. And it, the whole thing was just very endearing. And, you know, uh, Paul's uh, holding Heather Eastman at that point, uh, you know, when they're all just talking and you can tell that she's like, all right, I'd like to, you know, go home. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I didn't realize. Yeah, just there were so many people in and out of it but uh the obviously what makes this so compelling is just watching them work stuff out together now i think that the thing that so many people were talking about when this first premiered over thanksgiving weekend was just the way that paul kind of sits down and he doesn't really have anything he's just got a little bit of a riff for get back and the film being called get back because just watching it evolve into what we all know it as i mean that was one of those you know and there's a lot of those moments where you're watching them sort of like come up with the lyrics to some of these songs but uh i i think that uh that to me that that's a great reason to call this uh get back what did you think about that gene now gene oh gene let me before you answer you're also very familiar with a lot of this material right you've heard a lot of these outtakes and you've seen you you probably feel like peter jackson did us a disservice by not turning in a 55 hour cut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I do. Um, first of all, I, I loved it. It was like you used the term earlier. This was like a Holy grail for Beatles fan, but the, uh, they did do more of things like all things must pass and all, but you are just not going to see it in a cut. Sure. It's eight hours. Cause I have, I have about 90 hours of the audio that was recorded during the sessions. And, and you do hear songs over and over. Um, <clears throat> so it is there and it is done more. Um, one thing uh, to go back on an earlier point, one of the big differences from the first film to this is that they take more liberties with the chronology of the events. 
you know, like I think it was in part three when Paul and John were having a little bit of a private conversation um, in a room together. Uh, and Paul saying, you know, George doesn't want to do films and we have to do this stuff. You know, all that that happened much earlier in the, the first one. And, uh, you know, things were out of context. But, you know, that stuff happens when you have to make a short con condensed version yeah, sure. to, to give the spirit of it all. Um, but did you have a specific question or what were you asking? Well, uh, just sort of about, you know, uh, the reason why I, I sort of put in the qualifier that you're familiar with this material, but the idea of watching Paul start with, you know, pretty much nothing for get back, yeah. you know, and just sort of that evolution that, uh, I mean, the know, title could just great. be that you're jumping, you know, it's just, he's basically saying we're going back in time to watch something that occurred too, which yeah. is, you know, a nice double meaning of it. Um, but it is nice to see that's the, that's, uh, you know, there's been a lot of criticism, not a, I don't even know how much criticism there is because most people love it, but a lot of people aren't just aren't ready to watch that. The Beatles just sit without a thought in their head until it comes and then go through the same verses five, six times. Um, I think, you know what I think it is though? I think a lot of people didn't know that Peter Jackson's film was done after Frodo left the band. So they were really disappointed um, in that <laughs> aspect of it. <laughs> well, I, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of times like a really good documentary of any kind, especially a music documentary, you can tell people, you know, you don't really have to be a fan of the music or the band. I've seen very interesting documentaries about music that I'm not particularly interested in, but this one is so in depth and you spend so much time with it. I'm like, you have to like these songs. I mean, I guess you don't have to like these songs, but you have to like the Beatles. We have to want to spend eight hours with the Beatles. Um, did you find that Mark it's not particularly accessible for your casual fan and you know somebody that might not know much about them this wouldn't be the place to start that's what I keep thinking when I see the criticism people say it's boring it's just the Beatles sitting around well that that's what a lot of us have I used to say when I was younger for was first seriously getting into them um any sorry when you were younger so much younger than today exactly I okay, I never really needed anybody's help in anyway um <laughs> I always said anytime they coughed into an open microphone, I'd want to hear it. Then I did get access to a lot of those get back sessions. And I was like, well, maybe not every time they coughed. Yeah. Um, and I always thought too, if you, anybody's familiar with these audio bootlegs, most of them came from like the Nagra tapes that the, the uh, film production company was recording, not what the recording studio engineers were recording. So you had almost as much some guy going, uh, real seven, real five, boop, take. There's so much of that that inter interrupted so many songs. I always thought that that guy's, whoever's voice that was, is like the most beloved or most hated guy in Beatle bootleg <laughs> fandom because he talked over so much of that music. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I do think that this is something that is more for the serious hardcore fans, either fans of music history or more specifically Beatle fans because yeah who who wants to look at eight hours of some random band figuring out what songs they're going to play probably not everybody yeah I, I there's you need to there's, be a fan of those songs and those people there's a lot of bands like uh, i wouldn't want to see eight hours of recording well when we talk about super fans uh of the beatles we have uh, a, a great friend who's uh, joining us for a few minutes uh during her work day and when we bring terry and temecula on there's only one way to bring her on, of course. <laughs> Terry and Temecula, 
And uh, of course, the most high tech way to utilize any kind of music production is to hold your iPod <laughs> up to a microphone and uh, stream it. Terry, uh, I wanted to, uh, I know hey, you only Terry. have a few minutes. Hi, Gene. Uh, Hi, there's Gene. And then Hello. this is Mark, who you don't know, but uh, obviously. I saw his name. <laughs> You're like I can read. <laughs> you, can see um, you know, uh, and and Terry, I I understand that you haven't had a chance to to sit down with Get Back yet, but yeah, talk to you. We were just talking about George <laughs> a few minutes ago, and I know George was always your favorite, and yes. uh, I wanted to let you have a moment to talk about George. And you know, it's uh, it's very clear how frustrated he is with. Yeah being a part of the Beatles. I mean, he quits during the Let It Be sessions. It's, oh my it's the, end, the end of part one, spoiler alert, George okay. has quit. And, okay. uh, you know, you can just sort of see it's like, you know, John and Paul, even at this point, their relationship's a little bit strained, but they still work together. But he's mm -hmm. like, oh, I wrote, I wrote a new song last night. And he, you know, he's doing everything by himself. And, of course. You know, thank God Ringo gets to, you know, show a little uh, octopus's garden towards the end of this. Yeah. Uh -huh. You're just like, I, I don't know what he's been working on during all this. But uh, so I wanted you to talk a little bit about George and uh, okay. uh, why why you love George so much and, uh, you know, why he's uh, such an important part of, of the Beatles. Well, when I was um, when I was a little girl, my big sister had the Beatles records and she always said that George was her favorite. Um and so I kind of, I wanted to copy her and, and George was my favorite too. And also um, in the later albums where he's got the long hair and the beard, I seriously thought he was Jesus. So <laughs> I, I just saw him as this godlike figure um, there and just, you know, through his, re you know, all things must pass and here comes the sun and what is life and, um, I don't know. You, you just really can relate to someone who finally, after we, when he was done with the Beatles, he was finally able, he was at peace. Um, and I don't know, a, a few years ago, um, there was a tree planted in George's name and it died because Beatles infested it. I don't know. Did you oh, ever wow. hear about that? I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> Beatles had killed the tree. Story. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> Well, the interesting uh -huh. thing, and they, they deal with it, you know, in it, we were talking a, a moment ago, Terry, that uh, during these recording sessions, George has, uh, there's a couple of Harry Krishnas there that are there to mm -hmm. sort of keep him company. Um, yeah. They talk a lot about the, the sort of the spirituality of their trip to India. And mm -hmm. the takeaway is really that John and Paul are glad that they went, mm -hmm. but they weren't really into it. And Ringo very bluntly says that he did not enjoy the trip, which I thought was, um, it was nice to hear that level of honesty. And George is actually a little surprised at one point that, that you know, he even asks them, would you rather you not have gone? And they both say, no, 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 we're glad we went. So they mm -hmm. didn't want him to think that. But I mean, that's such an important part. I mean, obviously his contributions on the albums from Sgt. Pepper's on all seem to really be influenced by that. And that was such an important part of him. But uh, just uh, talk a little bit about the the spirituality of George and how that, you know, I mean, more so than really any of the other three of them, you know, I mean, they, that's such an important part of his music. Well, of course. Um, and uh, recently um, I just uh, became a great aunt and um, my niece and nephew had a son. Guess what his name is? 
Dylan, guess, Dylan George. Yeah, <laughs> I know you were oh always disappointed. I know you were always uh, disappointed that I named my son Felix. And uh, Felix, yeah, George. but if I call my him middle George. name is George, so yeah. Uh, you know, I but, saw. Uh, she my... said they they did a gender reveal online because they didn't want to burn down Burbank with their gender reveal, so they did it online. Yeah. And um, they, uh, which I appreciate. As they, a Burbank yeah. yeah, thank you and for not. And they played uh, "Here Comes the Sun" when they oh, when they nice. revealed they were going to have a boy. Um, so I think it just speaks, he's just speaks to all generations. It's timeless. He's just timeless. Yeah. My well, favorite, my favorite license plate I've ever seen is from Georgia and below the word Georgia, it says Harrison. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, uh, Terry, I, I appreciate you taking a few minutes to chat with us and, uh, I do yeah. hope that you, uh, get a chance, you know, at some point you could, you could just sign up for Disney plus for a month and yeah, uh, take I'll the give time it a to try. watch it. And, and I, uh, can know. I just say hi to Jean? Jean, I see your books every day at work. I'm a children's librarian now. And oh, I, I see your books and I recommend them. So I hope you keep writing them because I'll definitely order them for the library. Well, Terry, just get in touch with me <laughs> privately and I'll send you some, some I, signs. Yes, ones, okay? that'd be wonderful. <laughs> and by the way, Dominicus Jackson was very excited to see you. Okay. And uh, the, your theme song really brought him back. Oh, uh, good. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Terry, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that uh, as soon as we have an excuse to do an Orson Welles show, we'll have you on for that as well. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, I, I think that, that. Uh, we could probably do We could do a whole show on the uh, the frozen peas. Uh, out there. <laughs> the yes, always. Uh, recording yes, session. always. You know, why is there not why is there not an eight hour documentary on the yes, always? <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, Terry, thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks for uh, giving mm. us a few minutes here on the podcast. Bye, Terry. Thank you. Are you doing sign language? Oh, she, I think she was. She yeah. no sign language. Yeah. So, uh, but let's, <clears throat> by uh, the way, let's, go ahead. Just while we're on the George thing, also what to put it in context, I think he had just come back from Woodstock and he was hanging out with Dylan and the band and really enjoying that experience and watching how the band was, there was no, well, I guess Robertson was writing a lot of all the songs, but sure. there was a much more communal experience there. And so he was coming back from that, back to a situation that probably still felt like the White Album to him, where he was just getting one or two songs on an album and not being able to really blossom as a songwriter. Yeah. And, you know, I, I referenced Ringo working on Octopus's Garden. I liked seeing, you know, George kind of trying to help him, you know, and it was it was interesting because, you know, Ringo just had the little snippet of it. I think that the biggest takeaway for me in terms of all of them is that Ringo is there to not rock the boat. He's like, whatever you guys want to do. I, I think that he he definitely let them know. He's like, no, I'd like to play on the roof when there was that little bit of, you know, everybody wasn't sure that they wanted to do it. You know, he actually said that he wanted to play on the roof. And I, I think uh, John said that he wanted to, um, but um, what uh, let's talk, let's keep it on George for a moment, Mark, uh, your thoughts on kind of watching, you know, the, some of these things about George, you know, you were talking about, well, Gene was talking about how, how much more there is in the longer versions of this, but what is your feelings of George, you know, actually quitting and then, you know, coming back and uh, we see so much more of everyone in this cut, these eight hours instead of the, the what, the 90 minute Let It Be movie. So uh, what did it do for your impression of George during this time period? 
that was always one of the most famous or infamous uh, moments in the original Let It Be was the whole, I'll play what you want me to play, or I won't play what you don't want me to play, whatever it is that will please you, I'll do yeah. it. That was always seen as emblematic of how bad everybody was getting along and all that. And in this documentary, in Get Back, you see much more context for when and why that happened and, and that it wasn't tense all the time. But yeah. seeing him quit was amazing. Now, they say right up front in every episode, they don't have footage for everything you have audio for. So sometimes they're using footage to just sort of represent what was going on. But still, the fact that that all got recorded and in, it was seemingly very sudden, at least and I, I rewound it and watched it twice. I'm like, Did it, what precipitated that? But he was just like, I think I'm leaving the band now. Excuse me? Yeah, yeah I'm leaving. And then immediately Mal Evans is like, can we talk to you about re residuals? It was just all business. It was very interesting. Um, George yeah. seemed like he was really, for the most part, aside from, you know, quitting the band, uh, very relaxed through a lot of this and up for messing around, playing around and experimenting and working songs out and, you know, coming to them with, uh, you know, something with without full lyrics and it attracts me like a pomegranate with the, were the lyrics for a little while. So it was really interesting to see more of George who wasn't didn't have a large role, so to speak, in the original Let It Be cut of this footage. He was he was sort of a sideman in that footage, unless he was performing one of his songs. So it, it gave you a little better idea of what was going on with him and uh, just what his personality was at that time. And 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 um, it was it was really interesting to see to me because it was really the focus of that footage and what we had seen a prep until that time was really Lennon and McCartney for the most part. So to get more time with George and with Ringo was, I mean, this whole thing for Beatle fans has been like the best early Christmas present <laughs> maybe ever, <laughs> aside from when the original yeah. albums were coming out or the anthology or something. So um, more time with George certainly was welcome for me. I don't know if it was made, God, my throat, <clears throat> excuse me. I don't know if it was made clear in the documentary because I knew of it ahead of time, but George was the one who brought Billy Preston into the sessions because I think it was a little bit of desperation or just looking for a way to get through this in a more enjoyable fashion. So he brought Billy Preston along and they knew Billy from back in the Hamburg days when he was yeah. playing for Little Richard uh, in his Little Richard's band. But once Billy Preston came in and they've all said this separately, you know, they felt the spirit was lifted, you know, and, and the energy just took off and they were all they all had to kind of behave themselves because they had guests, but it was the best thing they could have done at that moment to just uh, uh, <clears throat> change the, the tone and the mood. And he, and Billy just brings so many wonderful bits to these songs. He, if you, and when you see him playing, you're able to pick out the parts and really understand what a foundation he gave to a lot of those, those tunes they were doing. Yeah. So it's hard to, point. It's hard to imagine these songs without Billy Preston playing on them, you know? And I mean, we see some very early versions of some of these songs without him on there. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, and I, I love that the whole time he's, he seems like he's always got a smile on his face because yes, you know, he's, uh, he's accomplished in, in, in his own right, but uh, he's like, yeah, I'm sitting here playing with the Beatles. And I love when they're like, Billy, you don't, you don't have anything better to do, do you? He's like, what? No, I mean I got to do I got to do Lulu's show, but other than that, yeah, I'm I'm gonna be around, and uh, yeah, no the and uh, you know the fact that he's up there on the roof with them, you know, Billy Preston is such an important part of of these songs that uh, 
I think, you know, we get to spend even more time with him. And uh, I don't think it was clear that uh, George brought him. It, yeah, because they, well, the way they mention it in yeah. this, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, they just mentioned that he came by to say hi and that they knew him from the Hamburg days because he had played with yeah. Little Richard, you know? Right. I think one or more members of the group had made mention earlier in this timeline as you're watching it that they, they could use another person like an, another yeah. person to play piano because they're, the idea is that they're doing all these songs live and they can't do what they would do in a session, which is, you know, just take turns on the instruments. So then when Billy Preston came in, I think there was a mention later or an insinuation that maybe he would stay in the group after that. And maybe they would cool. be a five piece at that point, which well, would have been a George, Sorry. So how about when George quit, how quickly they started throwing around the idea that maybe Eric Clapton. Well, yeah, like it's like, we're going to give him friends. till two, we're going to give him till Tuesday and then we'll call Eric Clapton, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Which Who married George's ex-wife. Finally, they were so, and poor. that is that the wife that's in this yeah. is yeah, the wife. That then, yeah. That then, uh, yeah. By the uh, way, well, Linda, I'm sorry, but Linda looked so adorable in this film. Well, I've never yeah. taken to her so much as I saw. I, as I, I had to film. look it up. She was 27 at this point. I looked at her and I'm like, what is she, like 19? And I know, look, I know the world's different. You know, people, I guess, don't, don't necessarily age in the same way. And she probably hadn't had a particularly hard life. But, uh, you know. I the first time I saw her, I'm like, how young is she? And I'm like, oh, she's 27. Also, I'm really old now, so 27 looks really young to me, probably. Yeah. Uh, but also, uh, someone who, of course, does not look uh, really old, and I think is 27 at heart, is uh, of course uh, our dear friend uh, Tim Salmon. Is it Salmon or Salmon? I'm saying it. It's, uh, it's Salmon, like like the fish. Like yes, Tim Salmon, not, but salmon not to be confused with our yeah, with our with our Salmon, the Dark Prince. Uh, Tim, uh, when you saw that we were doing this show, uh, you very quickly volunteered to uh, spend a little time talking to us. So uh, we've been talking a lot about sort of, you know, getting eight hours of get back uh, compared to the 80, 90 minutes that we got from the, the Let It Be film. Uh, what are some of the big takeaways for you for, you know, things that maybe you thought you knew and uh, you've really learned more about? Or just things that you were outright surprised by. Uh, well, by I think the big the big takeaway was the relationship that John and Paul still had, because the way it was presented in Let It Be is very negative. You leave. I, I left Let It Be the first time I saw it in a, its entirety in New York City, um, hating Paul. <laughs> I just thought he was not very nice to John mostly. Or, but in this, you see, he's like Michelangelo the way he works. It's unbelievable. The process of watching Paul work in the studio blew me away. And I, I loved him so much. I thought this man is so, and he's such a great piano player, which I also didn't realize. Uh, there was so much about Paul that that just blew me away in this, in this documentary. You know, one of the things that Gene, you were saying earlier was that they talk about how Mr. Epstein, Brian Epstein had uh, recently passed away and how they were missing that figure. And it does seem to on occasion fall on Paul to try and kind of pull the reins a little bit, but he also doesn't, he doesn't want that role. I don't think he thinks he's suited for it, but there are times where uh, you can kind of see, you know, that it's like, what, you know, 
why exactly are, are you the one trying to make the like why are we doing another take on this and you know i read an interesting uh quote from john about across the universe that he feels like they never actually got a good recording of it because paul wouldn't spend as much time on his songs as he would on his own and you know, I don't, and and that's obviously the original versions from a different session. You know, it was on the, it wasn't a soundtrack. It was a, it was a fundraiser LP. So that that earlier version with the animal sounds, uh, and and I guess there were are these uh, these girls as backup singers that were outside the studio that they recorded in. So that's a, a slightly different version. But John always felt like, in terms of lyrically, that's his best song. But he felt like they never quite nailed it. Um, what do, what do each of you think? And I'll ask you first, Mark, sort of this dynamic and obviously anytime they make an edit, we're missing something, but do you kind of see that from John that it's like, Oh, we're doing your song again because it's your song and you want to make sure we get it perfect. Or, uh, is that maybe something more that John was maybe feeling in hindsight after the Beatles were actually broken up? There were those early 70s interviews. I think they were the Rolling Stone interviews, the Playboy interviews, yeah. where he was very uh, bitter and not generous, shall we say, toward his former bandmates. And I, I, I was thinking about those while I was watching this, because watching this, it was like, well, they, they seem to be getting along pretty well, and they seem to be working together pretty well. So I, I think a lot of that was just what he was feeling at the time, you know, that fresh, still stinging from the breakup when he was doing those interviews. Um, I, I didn't get the sense while watching the footage as presented to us by Peter Jackson, that he was really resentful of how many takes they were doing on others versus his own songs. Um, I, I liked how willing he was to, I mean, he was very much in mess around mode for a lot of this. Um, I think maybe more so, and I had to be reminded by a friend who's a Beatle maniac that the Twickenham sessions were really rehearsals. That wasn't meant to be slick and, and professional and all that. Once they sure, moved to yeah. Apple, there's still a little bit of that, but then they're trying to lay down tracks and, and be serious about it. But a lot of it was Lennon goofing off and, you know, singing in accents, which I love. I'm glad the version of two of us with the accents that I've loved in bootlegs forever was, I got a visual accompaniment to this finally. Um, but it, it seems like he was willing to, to do the work, you know, and for no matter whose song it was, he jumped right in to help George with lyrics and, and give him advice on things. So I didn't really get that tension from what I saw watching this. Yeah, I do think a lot of that's later. And you're right. It's a, there is a period in the early 70s, uh, which I mean, but that that song, How Do You Sleep, is about Paul, you know, and by the by the mid 70s, it seemed like that they were friendly enough so that, you know, Paul's talked about John and Paul being at one of their apartments in New York and watching Lorne Michaels on Saturday Night Live offer the Beatles $3,000 to reunite. And they're like, should we go down? Uh, you know, and then of course the fact that they didn't, which just the quick aside on that is of course, when, when uh, George is on, there's the, like in the background of Paul Simon, it, you know, you can hear Lorne saying like, look, if it was up to me, I would just give you the $750, but it's not, you know, and the fact that that was like such a, a big thing and that they thought it was funny, so as as tragic it is, as it is that we lost John when we did, the fact that they were able to be friendly again, it, it can it can obviously make it sad to think about, you know, in the 40 years since, well, God, they would have done something, you know, well, you know, they there was there's a bootleg. I can't think of the name of the song. Maybe, you know, Tim, but there is a, they did a recording at some point later on with a, a big group of people and it wasn't very good and nothing came of it. But they did play in a studio and record some stuff that 
I don't even know if it was formal material, but there. No, I don't, I'm not. I'm not familiar. I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not yeah. sure. That bootleg, it was called. Uh, it's titled "A Toot and a Snore" in '74, yes. and oh, it was wow. it was Stevie Wonder and Jesse A. Davis and a lot of the LA session guys that Lennon was working with when he was out there, and McCartney came to visit. And it's one of those things where no matter how you, you, you tell Beatle fans this, and they will never believe you you'll say, it's really actually not worth listening to. They're like, no, no, but I have to hear it. And, you, and then they listen to it and they say, you know, that really wasn't worth listening to. Right, <laughs> yeah. It's just you know, you know, the part At least what I heard was there's no actual songs on it from what I recall. Yeah. What were you going to say, Tim? Me, um, was when they were doing the sort of ventriloquist version of Two of Us, the two of that. Oh, yeah. When they're like, I that. Yeah, yeah, that was, was great, actually. Yeah. I mean, there were so many beautiful parts where you saw them acting like kids. And then you realize they're 28 years old. I mean, they're all, yeah, John the oldest seemed, one. Yeah, I mean, John always seemed older, though, didn't he? I mean, even yeah. when he was a young, young man. Had a, a Can I mention something before we get yeah. off this topic? Because um, you talked, to, you mentioned, Christian, how you thought, well, Paul might not want this role of being the, the big motivator and cheerleader. But I don't know if I fully agree with that, because there is there are times where he's talking John's talking with him saying, you know, you've got to lay back a little bit. This, I think this is maybe after George left and Paul's agreeing saying, yeah, I, I guess I do have to let him do his bits and stuff. Yeah, but you're right. What, yeah. what you have to remember too, during this time, <clears throat> excuse me, outside of the studio, Paul was the only one that was not married. And I've heard the others say like, well, this was even earlier than Let It Be where They'd all be really happy. They were all living out in the countryside or the suburbs, wanting to sit by the pool and just enjoy the success and things. And then Paul was and Paul was living in the city, single, going to the museums, the galleries, and and staying inspired and full of energy with new ideas for projects. And he would always be the one, even maybe as early as Sergeant Pepper or something, just saying, guys, I've got an idea. Let's get in there and do this and this and this. And they'd all be like, oh, here he comes with another idea. We just want to relax and enjoy things. So that's just his nature, I think. Yeah. And sometimes it could probably be overbearing. And but I think he'd enjoy that, that role. Sorry. Go ahead, Ted. He also did mention at one point where when they were talking, I think, in the cafeteria, and he says, uh, well, you've always been the leader, he says to John, which I thought yeah. was interesting. You know? So that he is interesting. Right, think he yeah. could take the mantle, I guess, but... Um, and everybody always thought John was the leader. Anyway, you listen to the early stuff. In the started. early days, yeah. yeah. Heavy John, you know, so. Yeah, but uh, I guess as uh, Gene referenced, it's uh, hard to be the motivator and the leader when uh, you're strung out on heroin. So, uh, and yeah, uh, yeah that, is, uh, that is definitely not something that really came across. I mean, I just assumed that there was uh, some degree of, of any kind of, drug use that was you know making him late and and i i still stand by you know like how sick was ringo you know i mean he's like sleeping in half of this you know yeah. but what were you gonna how say much they're drinking they're drinking in the morning all through this there's chain smoking <laughs> and drinking throughout the entire film yeah i don't know but you I know, also, I got the habit man i, I bought a pack of marlboros after the first night. <laughs> uh, well i mean look i i wanted some toast with marmalade there's the number of times <laughs> like, they're like should we have lunch i'm like didn't you just have lunch <laughs> You know, uh, but uh, there is something very civilized and British about taking the lunch break. And of course, this is a different time. This is 50 plus years ago. But, uh, you know, you feel like bands would probably be urged to, uh, especially when you're you know, paying for studio time in these days of like, we're not taking a lunch break. 
you know. But as George said, EMI is paying for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One of the figures that I found uh, interesting but um, mostly annoying is uh, Glenn, who is so often referred to as Glennis, because of just the number of times that he's not ready with tape. And like they're about to go and he's like, oh, do you want me to record this one? And yes, I do understand this, you know, tape. What I think he said, what is it? It's uh, two shillings a foot. And that's when when George says what uh, Tim referenced is like, William I is paying for it. But it's like, you know, we're the Beatles. You, you should you should really be recording a lot of this. Um, but it's like uh, and then, you know, when there's tech problems, he seems very. You know, there was a day that they couldn't start for like hours. And I was like, what time does this guy get to the studio? So maybe I'm well, getting it. Wasn't a, it wasn't a makeshift sketch studio. Yeah. Remember how well, that's, that's what I was going to ask. So, Gene, am I getting am I getting a bad impression of this guy from this movie? But it, I, I expected him to get fired, actually, you know, because well, he's he like, left. I got to go. Do, he had to go do another project. Yeah. I, I was just like, well, great. Get somebody else. You know, well, he's I mean, no, I mean, he was he was pretty great in what he was able to do. He's, and he grew from there and recorded some of the greats. Um, but not only did they have this guy named Magic Alex, was it? Oh, the guy who was the studio, yeah. Yeah, who was helping build this studio, and and nothing he built. Uh, it all sounded great, but nothing worked. So they were all they were kind of backtracking from the stuff he presented them that didn't work. And then Glenn would have to come in and fix yeah. things and be ready. And it wasn't videotape, right? So he couldn't just record everything. He kind of had fair. to let them do their well, thing. We also and talked about possibly recording over it. It's, and John was like, you're going to record yeah. over it? I mean, that's yeah. right. Yeah, which yeah. is funny because there's, you know, this is the the era from where the, the, the BBC was just recording over everything. I mean, there are hundreds of episodes of, of Doctor Who that they just erased. And then the only reason that we were ever able to see Monty Python's Flying Circus is because Terry Gilliam paid out of pocket and said, no, I want these tapes. Nice. And, you know, the BBC obviously made a couple of bucks off of that. So the American, the American comes through. Though. Yeah, right. The American <laughs> saw the uh, the fact that, like, we could we could sell this. What are you doing? <laughs> so, yeah, the idea of the tape. But uh, also, as we're talking about in the studio, uh, I, I love sort of just the matter of fact tape operator. Oh, Alan Parsons. I know. You know, which yeah. I remember from we had an interview with uh, Alan Parsons on uh, Dennis Miller's podcast. And I so I knew he was a part of these sessions, but I hadn't I, I didn't remember. And then it's just sort of like, oh, there he is. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, it's sort of like, you know, George Lucas was a camera operator for the uh, for the, the Woodstock movie, you know, just sort of. Oh, I didn't know that. I think so. Uh, unless I'm mistaken. But, you know, just it was so uh, crazy. It was well, Scorsese. Scorsese was one, yeah. Okay, yeah. maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, yeah, he may have been in the editing department, I think. It's Scorsese. Yeah, that's the last one. I know that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, so, I, I, look, I don't have a good sense of, of of studio stuff. So that's why I wanted to bring this up because I, I, I don't know. I think that my feeling. Um, yeah, you couldn't just run it, you know. It was too expensive. Yeah, no, and I know, it I know like it's film. different now. You know, I've talked to enough musicians now that, you know, they – they have studios in their houses and they're all able to kind of connect and like you can adjust the levels in someone else's studio, you know, remotely. So I understand that this was, uh, this was different, but uh, what, uh, you know, uh, Tim, let me ask you, what were a couple of the other standouts just for you personally watching this things that really jumped out at you, whether you knew them or maybe hadn't thought about them in a while. Is there anything that, uh, that really stood out for you? Um, 
I think a single moment that I loved was George comes in and he says, I wrote this song last night and it's old Brown shoe. And he's doing, he's playing piano. And I mean, and just the fact that they were running through songs that would later appear on Abbey road and in their early versions, I, I just, that, that is like gold to watch. I, I have to say, I, I put this on YouTube, on YouTube, on uh, Facebook the first night. I said, I was actually practically in tears and sometimes actually in tears the first night because it's the same thing when I went to, I took my daughter to, uh, to London and we went to Abbey Road and it's like going to Mecca, you know. Did and you go we, in? We didn't, no, we didn't set it up. I, I felt stupid, but I got a shirt. See, I got my, uh, my rubber sole shirt. I but, was in. I spent an afternoon in there. Oh man, I would love to do that. But I, I'm walking through just the gift store, you know, and I'm just thinking about my childhood and because yeah. it's, you know, the whole, the whole, my whole childhood, my whole life really. And it just, I, and I had to like walk away at certain points. because I, I get just, it. You know, I get and, it. But that yeah. was the same way during the first episode. I would sit there going, this is too much, man. This is like what you wait for. It's like the, the grail, you know, like getting back to the Python thing. Man, yeah, really I man. agree. Yeah. Uh, is there for you, Mark, is there anything that we haven't touched on? Because I want to talk about the I want to spend a, a good chunk on the, the rooftop, but I wanted to get, uh, you know, anything that uh, maybe you hadn't uh, had a chance to jump in on or as we've been talking, anything that uh, kind of comes to mind for you in terms of you know things that you've been particularly interested in, you know, sort of a, as you watched this. I think I might have mentioned or we might have all mentioned most of the big aha moments so sure. far but for me the biggest thing was experiencing this footage and this this moment in time in a somewhat leisurely way not condensed to an hour and a half and as somebody said i think maybe peter jackson himself said there are no talking heads in this there's nobody jumping in to give it context and tell you why this is important or why it's cool there's a little bit of on-screen titling that does that that'll give you context for what they're talking about or show you an image that corresponds to what they're talking about, which I found helpful. If some things I didn't know, some I did. And like when Paul starts to play Get Back, that on-screen title says, yeah. you're, you're going to hear this, what is gonna become Get Back. Like he's, he's creating it right now. Um, mostly it was just the fact that we were able to spend eight plus hours with these guys that we never thought we were gonna have. It, it cleared up so much that was a misconception for me it let you experience moments you'd only ever read about, like George quitting, Paul and John talking about that. What are we going to do? Them talking about, you know, Paul not wanting to be the leader. Uh, just so so much vulnerability was captured on camera that I would not have thought they would have done with cameras being around. I mean, this whole thing, the idea was this was going to be some behind the scenes of them rehearsing that was going to lead into a TV special. It wasn't initially going to be a big documentary. So the fact that they planted secret microphones. They essentially bugged yeah. the Beatles, pardon me, uh, yeah. thing and what that turned up. So to me, I mean, there were just so many little things like that. Really, it, it, it's like it, it's like the window into the past about this whole Let It Be project was fogged and Jackson came in with a rag and cleared up the glass. So we were really able to see it for the first time properly. Yeah, one of the things that I liked that it was a it was clearly a choice by Peter Jackson. He slowed down the film and and zoomed in on Paul when it's suggested that they play on the roof. And you kind of see that look on his face of like, "Oh my god, what a great idea." Which is funny because he seems a little hesitant to actually do it later. But when he's first told about it, it's uh I don't know. I was I was excited to see sort of that very human reaction that even Paul McCartney can be like, you know what, this is such a really cool idea. Uh, we, we have to do it. 
And I, I really think that, you know, the, the presentation of it, you know, just getting to, to see the studio and uh, Gene, you were uh, kind <laughs> enough to send me a photo of when you and your brother, uh, Billy went to uh, Abbey road. Uh, what, when was that, that you went? That was in nine, May 95. Cause he was shooting Muppet treasure Island over there. And I went to visit okay. and our friend Louise gold was doing a session there on a Sunday. And so we got to spend the afternoon there, which was like awesome. stepping into heaven. And Tim, I was just, yeah, it's awesome. Fighting back the tears. And yeah. you know, it was, uh, yeah. it was pretty remarkable. Yeah, no, I wanted to uh, work that in there. Uh, but uh, this idea of uh, playing on the roof, you know, and, you know, sort oh. of go ahead. <laughs> Before you get to the roof thing, I just wanted to point yep. out two things and tell me to shut up because I'm going to stop talking. No, so much. The, 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 if, if, if I wanted you to shut up, I, I don't know why I would have okay. asked you to come on. So don't worry <laughs> about it. Oh, well, I want to mention two things. Um, one thing that was a real cool experience for me watching. Tell me if, if you had this similar experience. When they would be messing around, they would pull out an old song from maybe the first half of their career. And to me, it felt like they were playing another band's material because you yeah, think how much they evolved in an eight-year recording period. Yeah. And when they're bringing out, I can't think of one now, but something that was on maybe like a Rubber Soul or previous album, it, it was like they were playing a little fun, busking a cover of somebody else's song. Well, they did a really slow version of Help was definitely one of the ones that they did. And, yeah. uh, you know, there, there are a few throughout and, uh, yeah, I, I agree. It, it is, it is fun. It's sort of like slowed down and they're singing in deeper voices and, uh, you know, I think it, but uh, I it feel, it felt detached from, you know, that I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't picture them playing it as younger guys. Um, but also, uh, one of the things I always looked forward to seeing, which they included in the film was that the day, the day that George quit they go back into the studio, the three of them, and they play this really aggressive, angry jam where Paul's got the guitar to the, and the bass to the speaker and they're smashing things and Yoko's doing her la, 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 and all that. Yeah. And I think it was just that, you know, uh, all that built up frustration and anger that, uh, out of what just at what just happened. You know, and being, you know, maybe it's the, the British thing, you know, where you you don't want to express it uh, in any, in, you're expressing it in a way that's not uh, healthy. That, all the it time. was sort of a punk moment. It reminded me of like, if, if Helter Skelter is the first heavy metal song, that was like the first punk song. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, yeah, a, that's a great way to look at it. And, you know, they are so inherently British at times, you know, in terms of dealing with their emotions and talking, you know, about the way that they actually feel about things and sort of not being as, uh, as, as forthright as maybe people would think in, you know, the, the, well, the, the first quarter of the 21st century. Uh, and in terms of Britishness, uh, we've seen the rooftop concert before, but I thought this presentation by Peter Jackson, I mean, even if that was all he had done, this would have been a masterpiece. Just sort of, you know, the the cut the number of cutaways to uh, you know people on the street. My favorite. I wish there were more of the people who didn't like it. You know, the the guy that they just like, no, no, don't like it. 
And the it's like, guy. yeah, that young it's like guy. not even a little bit. Yeah, that was the thing. It wasn't like the old guy who's yeah. like, this was very disruptive of all the businesses here in the neighborhood. <laughs> and I would like to speak with the manager. <laughs> yeah, like a manager the the old lady, they woke up. She said, I was sleeping. Yeah, I'm like, me. it's 1130 or, or you know. <laughs> sleeping it off. Yeah, it's like, what are you still sleeping? Uh, but yeah, the young guy who was like, no, I don't yeah. like it. Mm-hmm. And I I loved that. And uh, but then you also had the old guys who were like, there was like an, an older gentleman who was just like, oh no, this is they're they're good, they're great lads. No, anything they do is terrific. This is wonderful. Yeah, would um, you so, would you mind if your daughter married one and said, No, they've got money? Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, I loved seeing all that, and uh, I, I'm not quite sure who like retweeted it or something, but there's a there's a woman in in London who posted yes thanks for everybody who's noticed yes that is that is my mom in there and no she doesn't <laughs> wear uh she doesn't wear mini skirts anymore and oh. uh but she appreciates all of that you know so it's like people like seeing people they recognize because obviously all of these cutaways and people on other rooftops are not things that we've seen before uh so let me ask you first mark in terms of you know somebody who you know who's really bread and butter is projecting large images on a screen uh just sort of watching all of this unfolded and sort of the many different angles and and cutaways we had just talk about it cinematically just sort of watching the way that the rooftop concert was presented i i loved that it was presented that way Uh, i'm sure there are some hardcore purists who are probably ticked off that for any moment anything overrode the sound because you know you're while they're playing you're cutting to other people talking and not the beatles it reminded me seeing it that way the early days of dvd one of the great promises of dvd was the multi-angle a lot of them had an angle button on the remote yeah i remember that yeah watching this i'm like oh for the blu-ray we need the angle button so that we can choose exactly what we want to look at um i thought it was really well done because it gave you a real-time sense of what was going on you had the police who were literally at the door in the lobby they had they had uh, the original filmmaker michael lindsey hogg had hidden a camera in the lobby because he knew they wanted this to happen i think they even say that earlier on when they're talking they did, about yeah. the roof yeah. is maybe we can you know be pulled off by the police and that's how the film ends so you see the police you see the people who do like it who don't like it there's there is this subtle sense of tension i mean we know how we know how this is going to end but will will they get arrested will they finish the number will they finish the concert and just all the different angles you see billy preston which i don't remember I don't remember seeing much of him on that rooftop in the past. Where, to the degree we're he watching was, it, yeah, I mean, they, he he does get shown in the first film, but not, as, okay. not as much as now. Yeah, it was one of those things well, where also, watching it in the moment, I was like, oh yeah, he was up there too, wasn't? He? Yeah, yeah, but also too, what you're seeing here, and and what I didn't realize for many years after the first film came out, was how many songs they really did because they did two or three takes of several songs they I did the set, the they did three here. takes of get back and i think two uh, i got a feeling maybe i'm wrong uh but yes uh, yeah and and one of the nicest touches and it, it, you see it for a, a couple on the i think three on the rooftop and then a few in the the last sequence when they let you know which take is the one that's on the album and mm-hmm. sometimes it comes at a time where they're like, no, I think we have already got it. All right, let's just do one more. And it's like, yeah. this is the one on the album, you know? And uh, the, the fact that there, there are, there is that they got as much usable audio from the rooftop is, is really. Well, the three uh, songs, the three songs that made it to the album were one after nine Oh nine. Yeah. I've got a feeling and dig a pony. Right. So those, those are the ones. Cause the get back is not the one from the rooftop. 
it, right. it, that's the studio one which we we saw at a different point um, yeah yeah but gene uh, obviously you know you have seen that footage uh, a number of times and uh you know a very early with and it's actually tomorrow uh i believe it was uh 14 years ago december 4th we had on the dennis miller show we had uh ken mansfield who worked for apple music in mm -hmm. on the u.s side he was there and he's this guy in like a white coat and i i i only found him a little bit but i did see him there and uh I, it was just i i remember he had put out a book called the white book about that and he's actually written a couple books about the the rooftop concert but i just remember that many years ago you know uh dennis talking to him and just like t tell us about being there on the rooftop and obviously he worked for apple and this really kind of highlights just uh, there's a lot of people up there on that roof and they're talking yeah, about the rendering about the weight <laughs> they yeah. clearly weren't that worried well you, you watch know? the floorboards and and yeah. george like jumps up they jump up and down a little when they go out there but i always remembered the official you know video as it were for get back that mtv used to show it was about the only part of let it be you could legally see for a long time in public yeah and george's it's like he's on a little trampoline and those are those are not like stiff, strong boards. So, and they even say when the police come, like, oh, we can't let you up there. I think we're, we're overweight at this point. Yeah. You might go through. Yeah. They were going to go to that higher. So, I was just going to say, they were going to go to the, they were going to go to the higher roof as well, which I think was the roof to the, the part where they enter and exit, but they decided that was just too shaky. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the live chat, uh, Cam Egan chimes in, seeing the backstory of the rooftop concert was incredible, just sort of watching all of it. But Gene, what I wanted to ask you was, you know, there there has to be sort of a way that this was presented that, you know, was new to you. And what were what were some of the takeaways for you that was different this time for seeing all of this? New takeaways. I, I, my, my biggest impression, and maybe it was part of the sound mix, but as many times as I've heard this uh, and seen footage of it, it was just like on fire. I was just, I, I didn't even realize how much my body was moving along to it. <laughs> and they were just, um, they were just playing so well and so fiercely in, in a lot of that. That's, and I just, you know, it, it was a perfect way to, 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 you know, perfect thing to climax the film with because it was so powerful. And you got to hear, and as I'm, and, and after hearing seven plus hours of them rehearsing everything, it was yet another way to discover the songs because now you're hearing the parts that you saw developed in isolated form. So um, I don't, you know, I, there was obviously more people on the street footage yeah, sure. and more angles and things, or even just seeing footage of the camera on a building across the street and other things like that. But, there was um, a there's a great moment when the you know because you're seeing some of the other cameras move when the police first come up on the rooftop uh you can see like cameras scramble and like oh we need this we got to make sure that we yeah. got a good shot with the beatles and the police are behind them uh tim what about you watching the rooftop concert uh what were uh some of the most fun things for you to see in there i think the surprising thing um was number of takes i didn't expect that at all you know I, I'm, I'm glad he left those in that they actually did things several times like they're actually recording a live record the idea of doing a live record you know you, I, I never really thought they they had the idea of going up and doing a live album you know but obviously they did because they were doing several takes 
you know, one takes. And the whole idea of them doing one takes with no overdubs is beautiful too, just the, the whole way through. That was their plan that they talked about the whole time in the studio, which I thought was was great. You know, that's something real, you know, it's like going out and recording live is what they wanted. I think Paul really wanted to do that. I don't know. But I got the impression also that John wanted to do it. And I'd always heard that he had terrible, terrible stage fright and would get sick and things like that or, or anxiety. So I didn't see that. That wasn't apparent at all. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Gene, did uh, did John, uh, as a solo artist, John did perform live though. Did he Did he tour? I, I Very mean, rarely. I don't, I don't think he toured, did he? he okay, played. I just didn't know, yeah. His last, he played, you know, he came on stage with Elton John, yeah. Uh, yeah. which was the night he ended his his um, long weekend, you know, after they had been apart for 18 months. But I don't know if he toured at all. He played, you know, some benefit concerts and things. Um, well, he did a lot of in Toronto, of course, but, you know, without right. from, from Yes, I had to get the Yes thing in there. And, uh, Klaus <laughs> the, and, the, and Eric, you know. the the Toronto thing with, when he did with Elef Elephant's Memory, right? No, no, what, with with uh, just the three guys with John, you know, with with Eric Clapton, Klaus Vorman, and Alan White. Uh, oh, okay. Live piece uh, in Toronto, yeah, where they played. Okay. You know, Jerry Lee Lewis was there. All these rockers, and he said, "I think the Doors were supposed to headline." I'm not sure if they did, but um, mm -hmm. I actually met Alan White and talked to him about that. Uh, oh, wow. And uh, you know, told the story. It was amazing. The um, something I wanted to bring up um, because I was reading about it earlier today. <clears throat> you know, the the timeline. Once you know, this was all the films all took place in January. Yeah, I did read though. George came back. I think the following January when they were trying to put the album together, and I think he did record one of his at least one of his songs that ends up on the album at that point that um, ends up on the let it be album or on his yeah album. it was e it was yeah the let it be album it was oh, either like for your blue for you blue or mindy mine or one of them he came back later but and then they did the they recorded the abbey road album from february to august and this is the thing i had never heard before or read uh, you know, Paul kind of gets the credit for having really broken up the band officially, um, which he did contractually and did make that move. But it talks a lot about this meeting they had when he came back from playing a Toronto show with Elephant's Memory. They were having a meeting about what to do. Or, you know, they took on Alan Klein as the manager and he was uh, arranging all these new um, contracts so that they would not only get 17.5 percent royalties or something but now they were getting 25 percent uh everybody but ringo was there and john was seriously thinking about leaving and you know george and ringo had quit at one point but john was seriously saying at this point i'm finished i'm done and alan klein was saying to him don't say anything even you know definitely not publicly until all these contracts are signed and, th and everything but he actually was frustrated in the meeting and told Paul and George, or Paul and Ring, Paul and George, Paul, no, Paul and Ringo, I forget, I'm sorry, but he let them know in that meeting in September, mid-September, that he was out and he was finished, and so they just became after that the Beatles in name, and they weren't doing anything after that point, so a lot of people are saying that the Beatles really did end that day, uh, and it was decided that day, um, 
that it was over. And then it was a matter of time, you know, in April of the following years when Paul had his solo album ready and he was saying, I'm done. And it was all Paul broke up the Beatles, Paul broke up the Beatles, but John put it on the table and the rest kind of just said, okay, I guess so. Uh, Cam Egan uh, chimed in with uh, I Mean Mine, I mean mine. Okay. what uh, George came back and recorded. Uh, yeah, sort of the dealing with the business side of it. You know, they're talking about royalties and uh, other publishing that they had bought and other artists they produced and meeting with this guy, Alan Klein. I, I think that, uh, you know, getting some of that business stuff is in, the, in there is uh, interesting and sort of that conversation about like, well, you know, the Stones get so much more of their publishing, you know, and uh, that was of interest to all of them. And, uh, you know, I, I find that interesting. You know, uh, when it comes to the album, Let It Be, obviously the version that was released, the uh, the Wall of Sound Phil Spector version, uh, Paul in particular uh, was not happy with that version. I believe uh, Long and Winding Road in particular, uh, he did not like what uh, was done to that. And I don't know, it's about 15 years now, I think, that the the... The Raw. Let It Be Naked came naked, out, naked, and uh, naked. I've been listening to those because that feels like more what we were watching. Yeah. But um, what do you think, Mark? Uh, we watch all of this, and we know sort of what happened in the studio to the album. Uh, does it does it make it harder to, or has it been harder for a while to listen to those Phil Spector versions of of these songs? Not not for me, because I've been a bootleg hound for so many years. So I had the uh, the Glenn Johns mix, which now is part of the one of the new deluxe versions of Get Back or Let It Be, which I want to get because you can actually now get that originally intended version of the album on an LP like it would have maybe come out 50 something years ago. Um, right. I listen to those bootlegs so much because as a Beatle fan, you listen to that music, you listen to the original albums so much. They're part of your DNA. You almost don't have to even listen to them anymore to still know and love them. But then you hear alternate takes where the vocals different or the lyric is different or the mix is different or some of the early takes of some of the earlier songs where the whole tempo of the song is different. So you get to know those. So I've lived with the, the alternate take versions of the get back material for so long that Honestly, the original release version of the album is more of a novelty for me now because I think I've probably listened to that less over the last 20 plus years than I have the kind of stuff we saw in this documentary. Yeah. Uh, same question for you, Gene, and then uh, you, Tim. Uh, sorry, I have to run upstairs, but I'm going to let you guys talk about sort of the <laughs> album and I'll be back in like two minutes. Oh, well, there it goes. <laughs> I, I, you know, I still love the Phil Spector stuff. I mean, it doesn't you know, maybe Paul wasn't happy with it. I don't know. I don't know if that was an afterthought or whether he was just unhappy from the start, but uh, it might've been I, the gunplay in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I love, I love the Phil Spector stuff as well. You know, it's, I mean, that's yeah, how I first knew all, that's how we all first knew it. So I, we all first fell in love with that music in that form. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's just interesting to have these options now to have the naked version, to have the Glenn Johns mix now, to have this right. extra disc of outtakes. It's well, that's what Paul said, you know, when they did the love album for Cirque du Soleil yeah. and, and, um, um, what's George Martin's son? Not, Giles, you know, and he, he remixed it and everything. And Paul said, you know, give him a break. You know, this is just the other, the old stuff is still there for you to hear. It's not like we've thrown away the other stuff. It's just, you know, it's about time we can play with it a little bit and just do something new with it. And 
he's always there's always been a much a big experimental side to Paul's work. I even let he did a two albums maybe one or two albums as the fireman with some other guy. I like a lot of that stuff. But he um yeah so the, so he you know I don't see anything wrong with some of these remixes because we've we, the old stuff hasn't gone away and it won't. Right. It's, it's fun to yeah it's it's there and available especially in these this day and age where you, ev, any listener could have the ability to hear a song in any mix they like they're kind of playing dj anyway so why not yeah it's so one of the things that it's amazing what you were just touching on is that you can you can have anything at your fingertips pretty much at any time and i remember the days when in order to see live music or um, video music, you had to wait for Don Kirshner, you know, or, or, <laughs> or, or Wolfman Jack. Literally, there was nothing, you know, and to get a glimpse of a band playing was something. You know, you had to go to a movie theater, you know, to see a Beatle movie or something. So, right. um, it's kids don't realize it, you know, <laughs> none of this stuff yeah. existed. You know, it's amazing. Well, just movies in general. I mean, now we're going to sound True. like old men talking about the past. Nah, nah, like, you know, you had, to wait until the, you had to wait until the movie came back to town to the art house. <laughs> That's right. Or watch it on the late the late show on Channel 6. That's right. Well, that, seriously, I remember watching, um, uh, Jesus, why can't I think of, not help for the hard day's night. I waited up till 10 o'clock. I was about 10 years old. It was a 10 o'clock show, I think, on Channel 5 in New York. And I was living in New Jersey. But I, you know, had to have toothpicks in my eyes to stay awake just to see it because you didn't have the opportunity to see it otherwise, you know? Yeah. That's how I first saw Yellow Submarine was a late night Boston TV showing. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, though, when you think about it, it's like it does make it more that the work more special. And as as little, you know, we maybe we got to see it once in a, you know, a five, six year period. Yeah. But remember how much we remembered it and how much we could recall from it because it was that special and we were that much more focused on it. Whereas today you just think if I miss something this time, I'll just, you know, I'll repeat Rewind it, it. Yeah, exactly. and stream it. Yeah. Christian, uh, you missed the, the best, deepest, most revelatory conversation. We actually did an acapella version of Across the Universe. Was we did. I, and, uh, I hate to be the one to being the new guy, but you're out of the band. That's fine. No, no, no. It's wait. Uh, since we've got this album coming up, are we gonna like walk across the street now? Yeah. Well, that'll be the next one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I'm. I'm certainly. I, I'm not even the Pete Best. I'm the Stu Sutcliffe of uh, this. Cami uh, Egan uh, talking about uh, would have loved would love to have the super deluxe set of Let It Be, but I don't have twelve hundred dollars to spend on it. If I'm not mistaken, the bootlegs come with. The box set. Um, I'm not even aware of that version of it, but uh, that's. Uh, I think that's, Michael Jackson's estate owns that version or something. Yeah, you know that uh, that was. Uh, Paul was uh, very kind to you know when Michael had all of his legal troubles before he passed away. He was uh, very kind to offer like, yeah, I'll, I'll buy my songs back from you. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's uh, it's interesting. Um, I wonder. Show and tell. Yeah, go ahead. My Paul McCartney life mask. Oh my goodness! <laughs> this was made when he. This was made for "Give My Regards to Broad Street." I remember "Give My Regards to Broad Street." That's very cool. Wow, and it's a little my, creepy, I'll admit, but it's still cool. Yeah. My Ringo life mask. That's made for the movie. Peace Man. and love. Peace and love. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't changed much, has he? Not, not really. And uh, then for my 60th birthday, I bought myself some Beatles era autographs. Here's one that Paul 
Yeah, all in one from Ringo. Sorry, guys. It's all right. Those are my. That's my show and tell. You know, I thought it was uh, funny as you showed me uh, Ringo that uh, somehow, you know, I had to I had to send it to you, Gene. You hadn't seen the Saturday Night Live sketch when Ringo hosted. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it was the Beatles auction. And, you know, people were buying like John Lennon's toothbrush and all of this stuff. And then they wheel out Ringo and uh, no one's bidding. It's, it's an actual Beatle. And, and no, and so he clearly has a, uh, a great sense of humor uh, about himself. And I, I don't know, that was sort of one of the things I touched on earlier is that Ringo is just like, yeah, I get to, I get to be in the Beatles. And maybe it's because he, even though obviously he was there for all the success, the fact that he got brought in later, he's like, no, no, there's, this is really something great to be a part of. Uh, but, uh, you know, look, I, I find that all of the, all four of them are very endearing at times in this. And uh, I don't know, I just think seeing Ringo in this, this time period, you know, he seems to be the silliest laid back, you know, but maybe because, you know, really they, they weren't really working on his songs at this point. Maybe that's what it was. He said he, he said he learned how to play chess during the white album because there was such little, so, so much experimentation. He just sat around for so much of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, no, that makes sense. Paul was playing a little bit of the drums on that too, wasn't he? Yeah. Birthday and uh, something else. Yeah, I mean, that's always sort of the the knock on Ringo is that, you know, he's the second best drummer in the Beatles and that Paul was Ah, obviously able to be a drummer. I'm just saying that's one of those things that people say. But then when you actually watch him, you know, it's not like, like, I think something like this, you know, sort of when we started, Tim, we were talking about this idea that people have that uh, that Yoko broke up the Beatles and another is that Ringo didn't really contribute much, but it's like watching something like this. You can, you can see both of those things are, are not true. Um, and now they Gene, were thrilled they, to get, well, so I'm just going to say, you know, he Beatle, Paul, uh, Ringo always gets the shaft, but not the shaft, but just, you know, he's played down his talent, but fortunately I think a lot of the more experienced and notable drummers these days are letting us know just how, why he was so great. And the be- he was the best drummer in Hamburg at that point. And the Beatles felt privileged to have him join the band. Uh, yeah. And once he did, you know, they started to explode. And, uh, and just think about it. Think about some of the compositions. If you strip the drums out and just put some other drummer in there, uh, it's not the same song and it doesn't have the same energy and the parts he played for the song, things to support the melody and the rhythms, not he wasn't a flashy feature drummer. And so he did everything he could to make those songs, uh, give those st- songs the best foundation he could. Listen to, listen to, um, uh, oh, oh. I'll think of it. You were going to say something, Tim? No, I, I was going was gonna to offer you a like glass onion, you know, I mean, the drumming is fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting that the idea that, I mean, I guess George Martin just very upfront said, you have to get rid of Pete Best. He can't keep time. And it was that simple. Like, no, he's actually terrible. And you guys are being held back uh, by him. Uh, By the way, uh, Cammy Egan says, Gene, there's probably no more lonely nights at your place. Let's make sure we got that in there. Uh, He's all mine. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Maybe. Gene, uh, now, was there ever any idea of documenting 
the recording of Abbey Road just later that year? Or was that specifically for these sessions because of what the original intention was? I think that's that was the case, you know, because they set out the idea was that they were going to do a big concert somewhere. And this was all just rehearsal footage to lead up to some big event. They were talking about playing at the pyramids and some really exotic places. And uh, it wasn't it wasn't meant to be. Uh, a, it was just meant to be rehearsals and leading up to having this big climactic thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think they, they didn't. I don't think they filmed. <clears throat> that much of God, I don't think they, it's a problem. That much of and, and uh, Mark, uh, it, it's interesting just uh, how much in the early portion of the first part they're like, Well, I'm gonna mention it again today, but uh, how about we go play in Libya? And it's like, <laughs> No, we're not doing that. Just the number of times that it was brought up, it was kind of funny, right? It, it became sure. amusing after a while because yeah. he keeps bringing it up and he's just like, the, the, the thousands of Arabs and the torches, it's, <laughs> and then one of the guys points out they won't speak our language they don't they won't know what we're singing they'll just look yeah. at it literally people staring at us playing then it's like well we'll we'll bus in or we'll boat in english-speaking people they're like maybe we yeah. can get the qe2 and fill it they give it to yeah. us for free for the promotion right and then george says we can't get an amp for free uh, <laughs> yeah it was i i think the whole idea of this was it was supplemental footage that they would you know you, sh you want to shoot yeah. way more than you're ultimately going to need uh for a tv special and then partway through they even say this is going to be a feature film. I think John or somebody says, this is the yeah. next film we have for UA now. And, and yeah. we still need to have that big ending. And it's everybody seemed pretty reluctant to really go much of anywhere to have that final concert. Thus, let's just go upstairs. Yeah, it uh, was, was a great solution. I'm sorry, what were we going to say, Tim? So you mentioned equipment. Just They had some really nice amps, though. They had a couple of twin reverbs in there. And, and then... Paul, at one point, I guess, Glenn asked him, uh, do, you, you know, do you have another bass? And he, he takes out the Rickenbacker for the first time. You know, I, maybe he played it. I guess he played it on. Yeah, he, he had it in the White Album. Magical yeah. Mystery Tour also, yeah. And the White Album, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but uh, that was cool because um, I love the Rick, you know. It's a great <laughs> instrument. I had, I had that same model, but right hand. 4001, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Chris Squire bass, yeah. Awesome. Uh, Is it? Same yeah, that's, that's Chris Squire's main main face. Yeah. Well, well cool. Mark, I also wanted to ask, tell me what you think about this. Like, I, I it took a little while, but then it sort of dawned on me that uh, his name was Michael Lindsay Hogg, right? Was the director yes. in 1969. Spinal uh, the way that he carried himself, the way he looked, but his voice, he really sounded like Orson Welles to me. Like the way that he spoke and the way that he was sort of like just talking about everything. It's like... Uh, I and uh, I uh, in, enjoy much of uh, Orson's work, uh, mostly as mentioned earlier, his uh, commercial outtakes. Uh, those are uh, <laughs> those are some of his finest work. But uh, I just thought it was so funny that you, you know you had that that voice on set that uh, was reminiscent of that. Did uh, did that strike you at all? He he struck me as a quirky cat. Uh, yeah. I was talking to a, a fellow Beatle friend. You know these feverish text conversations we were having each day as we were each watching another episode of this series. Sure. And he pointed out that uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg was alleged to have potentially been an illegitimate son of Orson Welles. And he had worked, he mentions, he does not fail to mention that he had worked with Orson Welles in the, in this documentary. So yeah. I think some of those affectations were either, either, either heredity or environment for that matter. But yeah, he struck me as kind of an odd guy, uh, sort of, sort of pompous. He could be just in the, 
interest of clarification, he could be a wonderful human being. But in the context of the footage that I saw, he he seemed a little a little pompous and a little weird. And, yeah, and uh, it was almost English. Cigars. Almost English. Is that what he kept saying when he when he was looking at the fretboard on George's guitar? Rosewood. Is that what? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Let me just just real quick talk. I I, I remembered the song. <clears throat> Go listen to the song Rain and listen oh, to song. just Ringo's drum parts. Every fill is a new invention, and it's just remarkable. It almost sounds backwards in my head. <laughs> you know that just that sort of plodding uh, beat. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But it never gets in the way. It never just jumps out. You have to listen for it, and then you see how wonderful it is. But it never gets in the way of what the guys up front are doing. If so, you go into the, the deeper right. realms of Beatle bootlegs, somebody was able to take the Beatles rock band game and pull mm -hmm. out each of the individual instrumental tracks. So right. if you know where to look for these things, you actually can just listen to Rito's drum tracks. And it's just it's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, that's actually really cool. Uh, so I, I'll ask each of you this as we sort of wind down here, uh, and you know, and I'm I'm not asking anybody that you know this this isn't like one of those Beatle magazines that the guys are reading in the course of this. I'm not going to ask anybody to rank their favorite Beatles, but what I will ask each of you is if watching these eight hours changed your perception of any of them in a significant way or maybe just oh this moment in time i understand better or do you think differently about them you know in general now maybe forever because based on this let me ask you first tim did it uh, change anything of the way you thought about any of the four of them or I mean, you could also say it yeah honestly i i i feel uh that uh yoko is a really a misunderstood person uh, and and this really sort of illustrates that uh, and again, Heather Eastman McCartney was one of my favorite people in this, as I mentioned. But uh, what about you in terms of the, the four guys? Well, I, I think I touched on it when I first came into the chat. Um, Paul, I mean, I've always loved Paul, but there was something about him that sort of rubbed me the wrong way. And then I see the creative process that he was. It's just amazing to witness Paul because he's he was so he had so many ideas. And he was actually fleshing them out right before your eyes. And it, just to watch that, it was amazing. And George, I mean, I saw a lot of the, the dynamic I felt when I saw George. Obviously, it was between him and Paul more. But they'd known each other since George was how old? 15 or something? You know, so they were they had a lot of history. And, and he probably always felt, to at some degree, uh, like the younger brother or the younger, you know, guy in, in, the, in the mix. And I mean, he later would say, you know, during that song, well, I can't remember the song um, all those years ago where he says, I always looked up to you. Yeah. And, and talking about John. So he clearly saw them as the older guys, the more experienced guys or whatever. So I think that he he really wanted to obviously express himself, but he had these two geniuses, <laughs> you know, in front of him that um, it's hard. That must have been very difficult. It's interesting too how his 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 they all had their own their first solo albums and his surpassed them all in sales and everything. Yeah. Who wait, sorry, who's the George's? Oh George's no, George yeah. all things. Like a coiled mass. spring, you know. He's, yeah, I think George uh you know, George in terms of I guess, you know, hitting a home run with his first one and uh, you know, uh it's uh it is interesting. But look, you can uh you can point to all of them. Uh George did also give us I got my mind set on you and Paul did the unforgivable and gave us silly love songs so you see you can always I like, take I love the bass part in silly me love too it's you can love the bass, bass part if you want 
but it's still silly love songs and he still wrote those words and uh he he to this day he you know uh i i saw hey, what's Paul wrong with that stadium. i saw paul at dodger stadium i think uh 2013 2014 and uh i was like oh he did everything you wanted to hear and then uh, this was on the radio somebody pointed out he didn't do silly love songs i'm like yeah, he did everything you'd want to hear. <laughs> so, uh, and and look, I, you know, I mean, it, it's uh, I, hey, I, I I'm, I'm never gonna not be a meat eater, but the fact that he's in his mid seventies and he still does like three hour shows, uh, there might be something to being a vegetarian. I'm sorry, what I, you say, I James, spent, I've spent a good, I've spent many years, um, not now, but many years yes. as a vegetarian and vegan and everything. And mm -hmm. oh, the dog's calling. And he, he he and Linda played a part in that for me. They give sure. me some influence. Anyway, um, oh, what was I going to say? Um, oh, oh, oh. Uh, one thing that's really impressive, I talked about Paul doing a, an album by, under the name The Fireman. Oh, and yeah. go, if you want to be impressed by his stamina, I think he might, well, he was at least in his late 60s early 70s when he did this song called nothing too much nothing too much I think, where it's just like he's wailing and screaming like he does you know at the end of let it be and stuff um take, go take a listen to that and uh, get a sample of the, the endurance he still had uh, like maybe five or six years ago yeah, I mean, it was like seven, eight years ago that I saw him. And, and, and you know, I didn't go see him again. Uh, I think it was in 2019, which I believe because of the pandemic, it's still the last concert that Paul has played to this point. Uh, I, I had seen him just a few years earlier at Dodger Stadium and the, the day didn't work, so I didn't go. Of course, he was joined by Ringo for that show. So uh, that's, uh, the, you know, that, that will certainly be my regret. If, yeah, the Ringo, uh, the Ringo's All Star shows are really good shows to see. I've too. never seen one. I've never seen one either. Yeah. I've yeah, seen they, two of them, and because he has a lineup of these superstars in their own sure. right, and they play their songs too. It's not just Ringo's music, right? So they're really worth seeing. I saw him at the Hollywood Bowl when I was living out there, Christian, wow. and then okay. and here at the Tower Theater. Yeah, they're worth seeing if if he goes back on the road. Well, Mark, I want to ask you the same thing, sort of, uh, you know, overall thoughts about the four of them, anything that changed, obviously, you know, you've spent a lot of time, you know, reading and watching and knowing what they thought about things, but actually seeing them at this time period, did it change anything the way you thought about anything in, in terms of the, the four of them? Well, I, I never pictured Ringo as a gentleman who would warn others that he had recently passed gas. Uh, but <laughs> that was a magic moment. It was, that was, that was, yeah, that was the magical Christian, uh, I believe. Uh, <laughs> that was, that's what the magic Christian refers to. Yeah. Uh, actually, maybe first to you. The, uh, overall, I don't that's think it changed my opinion. It made me realize that John was not completely out of the game, shall we say, during these sessions, which was sort of my vibe from what I had read and what the original Let It Be film. It's just he was there because he had to be. He didn't want to be. He wanted to be with yoga. He was engaged, clearly, in what was going on. And overall, it was just a it, this film gave me a better sense of who these people were as people in their work relationship as opposed to rock icons in fleeting images that you had. You spent eight hours with these guys at work, and that was just that was really interesting to me. 
Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I legitimately can't imagine watching it again just because of, uh, like I, I never finished squid game, like the amount of stuff I have to watch. <laughs> I, I put this at the front that I wanted to watch it, but, uh, to oh, you know, one, one I, I could thing. definitely hang. Uh, I, I could definitely see going back and watching this presentation of the rooftop concert again. Um, I also think that if it's ever presented in a different way, either on Disney Plus, it, it, it or is. Like, well, I I right. would break up each of the days as chapters. Is what actually I, mm -hmm. I was thinking would be a good way to do it because look, that's the way I actually had to watch it. I <clears throat> I couldn't no. sit through any of these just because of you know I was tired. My life you know just I had to go get the kids, so I would stop sometimes on a day. I tried to not stop where like it wasn't the ending of a day or yeah. ending of the part. Uh, so I hope that it's made a little bit more accessible in that way. What do you say? There's two things. Yeah. yeah, there's two. Um, well, there are rumors that the Blu-ray or whatever is might have five, six extra hours, but there's Yikes. also, but just like <laughs> last week, there's a, a, a 100, I think a 100 minute feature version that was screened in London to a big celebrity um, audience. So there, there will probably be that making its rounds at some point, his own encapsulation of it all. Uh, in the same, you know, with the same length as the original film. Yeah. And I'm sorry, Tim, what were you going to say before? I don't remember, but I know in the, in the version that Gene just referenced, Ringo actually wins somehow. I don't know. What, <laughs> he comes out on top somehow. It's amazing. Oh, amazing. come on. Oh, Ringo. The other three quit and George is just sitting there in Twickenham by himself. Yeah. Ring, Ringo clearly uh, wins in, in so many ways, you know, it's uh and, uh, you know, in terms of uh, one of the greatest videos released of our lifetime is Ringo's Peace and Love. Right. No more autographs after October the 10th. <laughs> It'll be tossed. Uh, that's still my favorite. One of, yeah. That might be my favorite Beatle moment. <laughs> and I'm joking, but uh, it's up there. Uh, yeah, but... Uh, uh, in any case, uh, I, I really appreciate all of you taking the time to uh, chat about this. Uh, Tim, do you have anything that you'd like to promote? You want people to follow you on social media? What would oh, you God. like? I mean, not really. Not really. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't have just, anything. Just to... the next time you're on the Blackcast, people will uh, know to say hi. Well, Mark, we mentioned the driving. We mentioned the podcast. But let's let everybody know once again where they can find all of that. Uh, if you go to MahoningDIT.com, that's the general website for the Mahoning Drive-In Theater. You have, wait, sorry, you have DIT.com? Those three letters weren't taken? Uh, MahoningDIT is one word. Oh, MahoningDIT. I right. thought you said just DIT. No, that, that's no. like That's like if somebody had like Steve at AOL.com. I'm like, wait, you were the first Steve? Oh, I, I, so I see somebody with an email address. I'm like, how did you not have a number at the end of your name? This is amazing. Yeah, I bought it from, I think yeah. I bought it from Gene Simmons, though. Yeah. Couldn't even have the ground floor of that. MahoningDIT.com is our website for the theater. Uh, Anchor.fm forward slash Mahoning Drive In is our podcast. And if you go to one of those two places, you can find everything else that we do. Right. You and then the they'll, they'll find you as well. Oh, there's a Patreon, according to Gene. There is a Patreon. That, that can be found through the website. Okay, great. And everybody can find everything. Uh, and Gene, uh, I will not uh, cut you off of your plugs. But Kemi Egan, I saw Ringo and his all-star band two years ago. It was a blast. Before the show, a friend of mine had money to burn and paid $6,000 for a meet and greet with Ringo. Wow. Uh, he signed her arm and then had it she had it tattooed. I've seen people have done that. Uh, you know, you mentioned Gene Simmons a minute ago. $6,000 for a meet and greet. Oh. 
we have to revisit because it's a thousand dollars for a kiss meet and greet and 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 you 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 meet you know gene and paul and the other two guys uh, leave ace at home yeah yeah uh so uh gene obviously there's the beretta brothers podcast what else uh should people know uh yeah the beretta brothers vodcast which is more muppet centered than anything because my brother is one of the muppet performers and producers but um I write and illustrate children's books and everything that uh, I do is on jeanberetta.com. And that's two R's and two T's. Yes. So that's uh, Beretta, uh, obviously. Yeah. And you also You're in one of my books, by the way. Remember? Uh, uh, I think I'm in two of your books. I, I'm wearing a Mets uniform in one of them. No, that uh, was just something I drew for you solo. Oh, that was just a gift. You're in, yeah, you're in my Lincoln and Kennedy a pair to compare. That's right. I, yeah, I knew that I was in one of them. Uh, yeah. Was, wait, wait, am I am I at Forge Theater uh, yes, running out are. the back door? You're at Forge. With <laughs> it's the a little, that, everybody missed that episode of Quantum Leap. But uh, <laughs> in, in any case, yes, I always appreciate that. And I have uh, framed up in my room, I have a... Uh, a a chimp doctor uh, sketch that you wrote for me. So uh, <laughs> and Mark Mark's just looking like a no. Everything hey, everything's better with chimps. I'm all for it. I, look, you, you can't you can't just yeah exactly. <laughs> you uh, you uh, there are some people who would uh, definitely not disagree uh, with with that in in one way or the other. Uh, in any case. Uh, I do appreciate all of you taking the time. Uh, people in the chat seem to enjoy this conversation, uh, whether they would watched it or not. Uh, thank you to everyone. Thanks, for Thanks. I really appreciate it. I would like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we have the audition. And in the end. Uh, and uh, yeah, well, good. Well, you know what, Gene? Why don't you uh, take us out with a little Her Majesty? I don't know it. <laughs> here, well, wait. I'll give you here. Here, here we go. I got a feeling, a feeling I can't hide. Oh no. Uh, by the way, it's just a complete aside on the uh, the Japanese pressing of uh, Pearl Jam's first CD. There's a bonus track and it's uh, Pearl Jam doing uh, I've Got a Feeling. And uh, in that uh, I will admit that that was the first time that I really heard that song uh, in 1991. You know, you know, it's a cool bootleg. Speaking of Her Majesty, uh, here's the quick story on that is that Her Majesty was originally planned to be in between Mean Mr. Mustard and Polythene Pam. Oh, that's and interesting. Yeah, and there you can find the original mix with it right in there, and you see how it fits in. But they edited it out at one point, and they just tagged it onto the end of the, the tape reel. And they forgot about it, and so when they were doing their mix, they, they just let the tape run at the end of um, the end, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're just sitting there, and all of a sudden, Her Majesty pops in, and, you know, and uh, <laughs> they said, oh, we got to keep it, we got to keep it. So that's why it's uh, there's like a 15 second or something. Uh, uh, I, a friend of mine, she uh, told me that uh, her goal was to start a band just so that she could do like an eight minute version of Her Majesty. I think that <laughs> she just wanted to be able to do that uh, live. Well, I would like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we pass the audition. <laughs> Yay!